welcome to Writing the Wrong Way, where we talk about how writing works, how writers work, and how the best writers risk being strange. And my guest today is Erin Moy, a wonderful poet, translator, and creator of so many things. Erin is the Jake McDonald Writer-in-Residence at the University of Winnipeg uh, at the current time uh, when we were talking here, and she was kind enough to come to my class. Um, answer some of the student questions that I had, you know, prepared uh, in front of me and, you know, even take a wonderful question from a student uh, live in the class. And so uh, without further ado, let's just dive right in to talking to Erin Morey. Erin Moray is here because of the, she is the writer in residence at the, the Jake McDonald Writer in Residence at the University of Winnipeg. So we're really pleased to have her and really, you know, thrilled the University of Winnipeg has made uh, this possible. Uh, and Erin, I just wanted to kind of start with talking to you about your, because this class, the students have read uh, your prank poem sequence that you co-wrote. Uh, that's right. in the, the Why Poetry Sucks anthology that me and Ryan did. Um uh, I think like a good place to just sort of start with, you know, sort of who you are and what you do and why you do it is to kind of look at where maybe your translation practice and your uh, writing practice overlap. Because I find um, you, you know, I'm a big fan of your work, but also uh, really enthralled by your translation approach. So I was curious if you could talk a bit more about like kind of where that, those two things overlap for you, because I know they do very much overlap. Well, I mean, I, I think that, um, Translating poetry, um, I speak uh, three languages, and because of the, the ones I speak, I understand uh, two others. So um, I think it's kind of part of my practice in to, to read. I mean, the, a big part of any poet's practice is reading. And um, I read uh, in three languages regularly, and in my other two, I can also read. I, I read in, in English, in French, and in Galician, Gallego. And I can read in Spanish and Portuguese. I can actually read in Italian and a bit in Romanian. And yeah, Catalan. But uh, as well, but more slowly. So I, I'm. if you're going to be a poet and you speak more than one language, you aren't just going to read poetry in English. You're going to read poetry in all your languages because it's all language to me. It's not different languages. It's just language. And so um, to me, part of my practice and almost responsibility, the fabric of poetry is to um, when there's works that I like that I think could contribute something to uh, poetics in, in English, that I, I, I try to translate, I try to bring that to people. And um, as well in doing so, it's very fulfilling. I get to live inside other people's poems, you know, and it's... Um, it's, it's, I discover resonances. I, I find things in the poems in working on translating that, that even the writers didn't think consciously about. So it's, uh, it just makes life very rich and fun. And I know that part of the translation, I feel like it has such a rich literary tradition that doesn't get talked about enough. You know, uh, another thing we look at in this class is, you know, look at some Poe. We look at Baudelaire and we look at the different translations of, you know, one of Baudelaire's uh, to the reader. His, oh, um, great. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And, uh, of course, he very famously translated Poe. And then if you look at, you know, 
a, a host of translations. Uh, like we look at, you know, maybe 20 different translations of Baudelaire, one poem, and you can see all these differences. And that's the poem, of course, where he's inventing a word, Trismegist, uh, kind of taking off this earlier combination of things. And it's very, uh, it, there's just such a rich literary tradition and writers, I feel, are so engaged uh, with not just the people who came before them, but also just the cross-cultural, you know, pollination uh, of literature. But yet, you know, it's opened up quite a bit lately, but the Academy historically has had a real, you know, siloing uh, kind of effect in terms of, you know, how to look at these writers and what they're yeah. doing. Although that's, you know, that's something that you're stuck with. And it's hard when you're somebody who's trying to learn and trying to learn. There's supposedly a fast way to do it is to go to school instead of, uh, you know, school of hard knocks. So when I didn't graduate from, but went to, um, but uh, that's, that's one of the reasons I stopped going to school was because I, I felt it was university was stopping me from reading, but I'm not counseling that to anybody. It's uh, what I did. What I did 45 or 50 years ago is not something that's uh, advisable today, but you're still dealing with the same thing, like how, how to read, how to get interested in something else and go and read over there, how to, how to let the, the beautiful distractions that you are reading enter your being and, and guide you. Because I always say, I mean, people ask me, you know, how do you know how, you know, you're going to translate a book or what are the, you know, how, what's your, you know, how do you translate, you know, what's your set of rules for translating books? And I always say that the, the language of the book itself teaches me about the work. It teaches me about itself and it teaches me how, how I can translate it. I just have to really be listening. And this kind of gets into your approach to translation. So, so we were emailing briefly about this before, but a lot of people consider you a more radical or experimental translator, um, which I know you don't really see yourself that way. That, that's, that's because I've, I've translated almost 30 books, published books. Uh, I mostly translate. It's a, 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 a two factors. One of those is the factor that in Canada, all small presses are subsidized. Publishers that are subs and they're subsidized by one entity, the Canada Council. The Canada Council does not allow publishers to use their subsidy to publish works by foreigners. So even if I translate Choose Paddle, I cannot, they, you know, the publisher cannot use their grant to publish it. They have to, to publish an extra book on top of all the other work they're doing. And they work very marginally. They're not driving around Cadillacs, these folks. And that's sometimes beyond their energies. And as well, if, it, if they do do that, they'll do it with a, a book of prose that's won a prize somewhere or something that they think is going to sell. Whereas um, difficult poetry is not a big seller, even among, you know, poetry. Um, so, so I have to publish outside the country. I have, basically have to emigrate in order to do my work. And then if I'm lucky, I can manage to bring uh, the work back so that people can that read it in Canada. So, but as a result of the Canada Council's uh, way of doing things, uh, one of the results is that we don't read much contemporary work in translation unless some Americans have done it or it's been done somewhere else. And so people don't often don't see my work as a translator. It's not in libraries. It's published by tiny U.S. presses. So it's not in the library. And so they see uh, Sheepsfield Joe by a fervent person, which Nancy published as they thought it would be fun back in the day. And they didn't mind that it didn't get subsidized. And um, that book, there was a specific trope that I 
used in translating it because I realized in reading the original, when I was just learning Galician, and which you can read Portuguese from Galician, there that it's funny book. That um, sheep, uh, what is it called in English now? Sheep's sheep's visual by a fervent person. Well, that's your translation, mine, but, but I'm not sure what the, the keeper, of, keeper sheep, of sheep, keeper yeah. of flocks, or the keeper of sheep. Um, anyways, it's kind of a book that uh, that's funny in the original, and it's not funny in English. And I realized from my own research into the medieval cantigas of scorn and uh, insulting, you know, that that uh, humor doesn't. Humor needs to be explained. It's very time bound, and um, what was funny once needs to be explained to people in a later era. That's why, like like Shakespeare's comedies and his tragedies, when you first start to read Shakespeare, you can't tell the difference. And the funny parts of Shakespeare have to get explained to you in footnotes. The funny parts of the Portuguese. Uh, Galician medieval cantigas in the Portuguese and Galician books are explained in footnotes because they can't get, they're remote from what was funny in those times, you know, like making a joke about your fellow poet's coat. It doesn't sound funny anymore because you don't know where it comes from, you know, why is that funny? So that rather than create an edition with a bunch of footnotes telling people this is funny because I decided that you, if you moved the book into a contemporary scene and I could translate it into a contemporary idiom, that it could be funny. And um, so it's an anachronistic translation. It's out of order of time. And, but that book has been taught, um, well, for over 20 years. And so people think that I... I change everything in time, that I change the sex of the narrator all the time, that I do this all the time. And some people have been teaching in universities a thing they call transelation, which is I called my book a transelation, putting my little E, like E for Aaron, into the middle of the word translation to signify joy in doing this, to signify but it's not, I keep telling people, no, transevation is not a method. Transevation describes this one book. You know, well, so that's a long explanation, but that's those two things. We're not used to reading poetry and translation. So a lot of my books don't get seen and in Canada anyway. And um, and when just one book gets seen, then people think, oh, this is what Aaron does. I think there's also something though that comes into play where the traditional approach to so that anachronism that you talk about that isn't a, a thing that you've invented either, right? Like this is something no. that people often invisibly do in translation. Like there's a, a, a tradition historically we don't do it these days, but for you know uh, Western poets translating Japanese poems and changing the birds, right? You know, mm -hmm. uh, and, and doing other sort of anachronistic things to sort of make things more pleasing or to, or more normal. Like more apparent, because otherwise, mm -hmm. otherwise you don't know. Like if you said the name of a certain flower, mm -hmm. that then you would be indicating that the season is fall. But if you're reading it in a place that doesn't have that flower, then you lose the seasonal indication. And if that's the only indicator in the poem, and that's important, then you have to change it, you know? What I think is so interesting about it is that 
the traditional, you know, conservative idea of translation is that, you know, you know, there's this thing that it means and you're carrying the meaning over um, as, you know, closely as possible. But what I find, so. As nothing, as Juice Battle says, nothing means it functions or it produces. Well, precisely. Meaning, but nothing means. You've got a great um, line in the prank poem, uh, you or Anna does, um, I believe it's actually Anna, but in the perfect instant language is a bridge. Uh, and that idea that language is this play, way of going someplace as opposed to, it's a thing in itself, but it's also a method of going from place to place. It's not really these destinations. Uh, and so I feel like that in some ways encapsulates uh, your approach, which, which I find personally, uh, although it gets described as radical, to me, it seems like uh, a less radical approach in many respects, because you're trying to actually attend, get the same uh, emotional experience out of the reader that maybe the original poet might have intended. Which is, which is what, and, translators, and so what translators do. And I mean, even there, you're you're basing yourself on a false assumption, because say, if I try to, to give you the, the book, like to give so that you can are able to have a response in English, say the my latest juice potato in English, are able to have a response, something like the response of a Galician reader. Well, I can't read her work in the original like a Galician. I can only read it like me. Unfortunately, I spend a lot of time, you know, when, when it's not COVID, in, in Galicia, specifically to hear people talk, to hear the way people talk, to hear the way people receive things, to understand what their poetry culture is to understand the history that's apparent to them. I mean, when you're in a place like Galicia, where your random taxi driver, I mean, you, I get into a taxi and they laugh at my accent in Galician because people always talk the colonial language, Spanish anyways, uh, foreigners, they don't speak Galician. So to see a foreigner speaking Galician, they laugh at me. And I say, you shouldn't laugh. And I tell them, like, I'm, I'm a translator. And they say, oh, who have you translated? And I say, Rosalia de Castro. And they say, the ride's free. Can I bring you after to meet my mother? Wow. You know, like, uh, I'm like, hmm. and they're like, when are you reading? Where do you, you know, where are you having coffee? My, I wanted my mom to meet you or something like it's, it's, um, and then they're like, oh, just call me next time you need a cab. I'll be out the door and I'll take you where you want to go. I mean, like, this is a taxi driver. It's like, but you've translated their national icon in poetry. Hmm. Um, but nobody here is going to, you know, like poetry yeah. is remote, more remote from people's everyday lives here. And people like you look at people from, from places like, like, like Syria, who can, they can recite you tons of poetry in Arabic. Everybody can recite your plumber can, the plumber comes in my door here and he's like, Oh, Aaron, you know, and then he gives me a rendition of some poem in, in Arabic, you know, from, of some well-known poet. So we have a, it's, it's hard, like, to translate somebody into your culture and give them a response. There's all kinds of things that you've already can't do, you know, because, because, the, because cultures are different. What I feel is ironic about it is that you just, in your practice, you'll often acknowledge that. Whereas mm -hmm. in a more, in a quote unquote, less radical practice, they'll just elide, glide over it. <laughs> but really, is it the, the more like direct um, approach, ironically to me, seems to be your approach of actually, you know, building into the poem, the ways in which it falls apart uh, in some respects. Oh, well, yeah, sometimes, but sometimes, sometimes not, always. not, you know, but, but um, 
so sometimes you have to, I mean, all translators add something to make here and there to make things comprehensible, or sometimes you have to do an end note. Sometimes you just have to let it go because people are getting other things out of the work and it, and not, not everything matters. And that, and actually, I mean, to me, one of the beauties of, of trying to figure out what is going on, you know, how uh, an original poem is working is to do what you've done and, and take um, like the various translations of a Baudelaire poem and see like, whoa, where did, you know, you can see more of the Baudelaire poem by reading six translations than you can by reading one, you know. Well, one thing I've just personally as a writer who doesn't speak any other languages, uh, one thing I, that your work's really freed me up uh, to do in my practice is to create translations, even though I don't speak any other language. So I'll, I'll do precisely that. I'll, I'll, you know, I won't pretend that they're the best translations, but I'll go read a bunch of different versions and I'll do my own like little translation of a line, a speech from uh, Dante or a you know line or two from you know some poet. You know, just kind of that creative rendering, it becomes sort of a part of a practice of writing, I feel. Uh, you know, I don't pretend that they're great translations, but in some cases, I feel they're actually perfectly adequate translations, you know, where and they, can be. they can be. And they're they're also they exercise the poetry muscle in your head, you know, in a way that that other things don't. If you go on the modern poetry in translation site, MPT, there are often uh, they often hold poetry workshops or which are, well, they call it workshopping a poem, but the, they'll have a poem in a, in another language that none of us speak. And um, they'll have a, somebody do a literal translation of the lines and then they print both. And then you're invited to submit tra your translation and they just put them in as they come in. So that as the workshop goes on, there'll be like 30 versions of, of the poem and so then you're, you've got maybe like, you know, 25 or 30 lines. Choose Pato did it once. She was the poet once and I did the, the literal translation. Um, but I've done, I translated a poem from Finnish and a poem from Polish. And, and um, I, I use like Google Translate to try to look at what the original looks like. What words does it, it's going to do a shitty job. Yes. But what words does it evoke for me in my vocabulary? What do I see that I can do, you know? And um you can spend some really fruitful hours just frittering away. And as you say, you know, in the, what you were doing, um, you end up with a translation. Nobody maybe is going to publish it except on MPT. They will put it on their website, but you, you learn, uh, you let language teach you and you learn a lot and okay. it's, it's fun. <laughs> it's an attentiveness too, as you say, like, I just feel like mm -hmm. you're such a, I feel like people who take have more of the approach that you sometimes have um, just seem more attentive and they often will get labeled with, with that, that kind of experimental label. Like you'll often get that experimental label. I feel in some ways an unfair label. I, I was talking to the, the filmmaker Guy Madden once and he was uh, complaining that people called him an experimental you know, filmmaker, but he was really doing things. You know, he wasn't experimenting, he was really doing it. Um, but the, the word in other languages to experiment is to do. Experimentar is to experience and do something, you know? Yeah, which seems much more it, it, ironically in line with how that work tends to operate than maybe how it sounds in English, the connotations <laughs> in English. But one time I was at, in a poetry residency and um, a writer who's fairly conservative, who teaches creative writing and poetry fairly conservatively in a fairly conservative town 
uh, in a fairly conservative time a long time ago, um, call at, I did a class visit and he set me up with somebody who was an informal leader in the class speaking up to, to ask me uh, what use I was to them, you know, basically as the writer in residence. And he said this, so this fellow who would, I could tell by the attention of the other people in the class that he was an informal leader was uh, said to me, well, you're an experimental writer. We're not. How is that supposed, how are you going to be able to read our poems and help us? And I said, what, what kind of poems do you write? And he's like, sonnets. And I says, and when you're writing your sonnet, you mean to tell me you never experiment? And the whole class just went still. And he said, no, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to make an appointment for next week and show you some of my sonnets. Yeah, it's interesting. So like everybody experiments, even if you're, you're using some of the most beautiful work done in conventional forms is being the result of crazy experiments, really, you know. And even when it appears to really stick to the form, it takes even more experimenting because you've got no out. And often, so often I feel, feel like quote-unquote experimental work is, is really just going a little further. Uh, along a line of what people are already doing like prank oh, just to come back to the prank for example like the the joke of that poem in a sequence in many ways is like you know here's all these uh translations and mistranslations you know of a poem that maybe didn't even exist uh but all the but from poem to poem from like version to version everything that happens to the source text is something that does happen in normal translation. It's just pushed a little further. Um, yeah. And of course it keeps piling up because of the, the sequencing of it all. Yeah. And there's a whole thing too. I mean, it's a bit of vaudeville really. I mean, you know, in, in vaudeville, how the Pratt fall is, is critical. Like when Charlie Chaplin falls down, he takes a tumble. He doesn't really tumble. <laughs> it's uh, it takes a lot of muscles to do that without hurting yourself though. So yeah. Um, and to make it look like you've fallen, but uh, so it's kind of like that. It's like, there's a conscious effort that goes into trying to make it look like you've fallen. And it reveals the operations that are normally happening. Like you're kind of extending and revealing operations that are mm -hmm. normal uh, and are there, but are often not so apparent. I find that's kind of what poetry does in general. Like it'll, it'll take a lot of the literary techniques that we do see in prose, but just make them more obvious. And then when you move into a more experimental, or even just a more comedic space, um, I, I find it really useful as a teaching tool because it just sort of displays more self-consciously what's happening. Um, it's um, it, so just kind of to go back to just the kind of craft level, I'm curious to know if you could talk a little bit about sort of how uh, you like to work uh, either as a poet or a translation or later or, or where you kind of just sort of how you, your working day goes, you know, as a, as a writer. I get up and I work and then I go to bed <laughs> at night. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have like a, uh, a, a particular approach to the process you feel is maybe different from other writers because of your extensive um, uh, experience in translation, or do you feel like it's just sort of what other writers Jonathan, are doing? When, you're, when your hand gets too close to your mouth, uh, oh, sorry. you get a crazy violin noise, but no voice. 
sorry, um, I was just wondering if you had if you felt like you had a process that was in any way maybe different from other writers because of your extensive forays into translation, or do you feel like you're just sort of you know working like you're digging a ditch? Like you, I, you seem more of a craftsperson uh, in many respects than what? What's that like? I, I mean, I, I work like somebody uh, has control and and um, uh, an awareness of what they're doing to me. Well, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, I, when I translate, I just, you know, I, I start by reading the poem in whatever French and I type it in English <laughs> and, um, and then I have to work from there. I just have to work to think about what it's doing. What's the relationship of the language to the next poem. Cause I translate books as well, not just single poems. So you can't, the, the lexicon you use in one poem might be reflected in another part of the book. And you have to make sure you've chosen something that actually works when you get to that next part of the book. So there, there's a lot of exploration that's not linear in translating a book of poetry. You have to find what you think is the heart. You have to read the book and take notes on things that recur. You have to take notes on, on how, how the person is dealing with language structures to break them down or move them and what effect that has on on you as a reader. I mean, to me, I guess I have to ask the questions that I that I would suggest everybody ask of a poem rather than, you know, how to interpret it or what does it mean? Nothing means it functions or it produces, as, as Pado says. Um, I look at like, what is making this tiny little machine work? Where are the pulleys? How, how are the pulleys organized? You know, because it takes only this much effort to pull, to read this line, and it takes this much effort to read another line. That's pulleys. It's a, it's a like mechanical kind of engineering things in language um, that, that, that make it work in a certain way or not. And then how is that refracted or reflected later in the book? How, are, how do the forms change if they do? And, and if they don't, why don't they? And what, what does it mean? for the space on the page, you know, like, so there's a, I have to ask all kinds of questions of the book and have those in my mind, like taking notes isn't enough. I have those questions as I ask them about the poem or about the book, they change me. When you ask a question in any field, it, everybody, like it changes you, who you are, it changes you. So to ask a question and be able to try to listen for the answer from the language itself and from what the poet is doing, it's, you know, you're changing and building a capacity in yourself. Um, and I'm, I'm just constantly, constantly doing that. Partly because for me, it's not work. I, I love living in language. It's made my life really rich, you know, like it's, uh, it's amazing. What, what do you feel is um, the importance of the role of humor in your work, because you really, of course, in the prank sequence, you know, as you say, it's very slapstick. It's got this kind of three stooges, you know, Keystone cops, <laughs> people running after yeah, one another sure. uh, to try to solve something, but also well, yeah, in your, in your other work. Actually in that book. Mm-hmm. And, and, and often in your other work, you'll, you'll really prioritize uh, humorous turns, which I find uh just as a hallmark of a lot of what you do. Now you can get very yeah. sad uh, and, you know, move into other spaces, of course, but I'm curious to know what you feel is the sort of role or importance of humor when you use it. Um, well, I mean, I always said uh, 
you know, like you have to this in this world, you have to laugh to keep from crying. So a lot, a lot of my humor isn't, I don't think it's sarcastic, but it's what, um, it's finding the humor in the disaster. Like find, there's always something slightly funny, you know, even when you break your leg, there's something funny about it, you know? So it's not to, it's to receive the world as being a bit like, you know, taking the Mickey out of you and everybody. And um, at some points and you just got to go along with it and laugh. And so, I, I mean, part of it, part of it's that, you know, uh, but it's also like, I mean, I'm, I'm a laughing person. So probably some of my, my personality comes uh, and a jokey kind of a person. There's a, there's a kind of humor in, in, in Galicia, probably Portugal too, called Retranca, which is, is like people say things and it sounds serious. And then it, then it hits you that it's like not, you know, but it's not sorry. They, I've seen it translated as sarcasm, but it's not English sarcasm. It's, uh, it's something else. And that Retranca is actually the humor that's in, in uh, Sheep's Vigil. That's in, that Pessoa uses in, 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 employs. Talk a little bit about Pessoa, particularly in that um, heteronyms. You, you've also also made use of these heteronyms in your work. Uh, of course, the Sampadrin, who is in the that prank sequence, mm-hmm. um, is an important part of that. Um, I'm curious if you could kind of. I know you, uh, you get asked this a lot, uh, but you know, and these students haven't quite looked at the. Pessoa poem. I often will teach from the Pessoa book, uh, but mm-hmm. this time we're looking at prank. But Sempedrin shows up. I'm curious if you could talk just a little bit about Eliza Sempedrin and some of the sort of ways that she's used that uh, heteronym. Well, I don't know that she's, I think she's kind of, I call her a pantonym. But because um, she's not like a heteronym in Pessoa and in other, there's other writers, uh, Iberian writers too, that have used heteronyms. So is probably the best known from modernism from, from the 20th century is that, that he, his kind of attitude was uh, be multiple like the universe. And um, he created poems and bodies of work by people, but not only that, he created their biographies, their, their histories, their, their, uh, their horoscopes, even what they like to eat. He, he created a whole person who then, who then wrote differently than another person. So I think that, um, the, I mean, at least a San Pedrino was for me in writing little theaters years ago. And I wrote little theaters right after writing O Citadan, which was a very citational book. Um, it's a kind of book of, of a mixed genre, philosophy, poetry, fake philosophy, um, constructed text, uh, and um, in that book, I, th- there was a lot of citations, though, and unfortunately, like it got shortlisted for a governor general's award and I hadn't asked for permission for any of this. You know, you can cite things a wee bit in a book of poetry or somewhere, but you can't get very far without having to ask for permissions. And uh, I didn't ask for permission. So I was so afraid of having this, that this light was shone on this book and I was going to get sued by Derrida or something, you know. and. Um, that I, I got so stressed out about it that in the next book, I said, next book, I write no citations. But then I found like sometimes the text has a kind of will and of its own and that it wants another voice to comment on something. 
and that was when the this that figure of of uh, a rose that was making comment was commenting who was became a theater expert i had to follow her around she became a theater expert and and um and you know i had to read a lot of books to make her into what to but uh but it was that's where she first appeared in this idea that she interferes in other people's books. She doesn't bother to publish books on her own. She just interferes in my work. And so like she's back interfering a bit in the current book after having not interfered with her a few books, but, but she's also, and then, and then choose Patel wrote a biography for her. So then she had to take on that biography and, and um, yeah. And, but, and she has a personality and stuff. That's probably one of my personalities that's, um, she's cranky and I'm kind of not mostly so that she can be the person who's, who's cranky. And, you know, it's the great, um, uh, that the playfulness of having that, as you said, this, this sort of alter ego who's interfering in your work in a manner of speaking is, uh, it's so generative and great. I, I love hearing that Shaspedo has written a biography for Elisa Sampedrin. That's so amazing. Elisa Sampedrin, too. She's um, like Elisa is like Lisa is like slippery, smooth, slippery. And Sampedrin comes from San Pedro, who's St. Peter, you know, upon this rock I build my church. But Sampedrin, with that little we, that ending, Sampedrin, it's a very little rock. Slippery slope. Sampedrin. Pedrin is, is like a, a pebble. So this, it's a slippery slope of a church built on this very tiny rock. <laughs> so so I, I enjoyed that about it too. I came up with that name and then did some research to make sure she didn't uh, already, that the, somebody else didn't have that name already. And nobody That's wonderful. Did. So. Does anyone have uh, questions they want to hop in and just, you know, unmute and ask uh, Aaron? Just, you know, pause to yeah, if anybody people. wants to ask something, or yeah, I'm perfectly happy to answer you. I know people can be shy, but I have a question just uh, here. You can also type your question in the chat. Yeah, that would be helpful to too. You could, you could type it in the chat, and I can just answer it. I have the chat open. I know that some people are interested in just um, how it is to co-write uh, with uh, another author. So I know people had emailed me to ask um, mm-hmm. what it was like working with Oana. And um, Oana is great to work with. <laughs> how Some did that, people are not great to work with. <laughs> how did that prank uh, sequence really kind of start and develop? Like, how, do you remember uh, the origins of that? Um, well, that it started in the era when I was writing Oris Blandor, where I was writing um, Oris Blandor, well, I wasn't writing, I was writing things that became Ores Plandor before I was writing Ores Plandor. But um, I was translating from Romanian and it's kind of my knowledge of Galicia. Uh, Romanian is also a, a romance language. It's derived from Latin, but it's um, it's separate from it, from most of the other languages. It shares a bit of a border with Italy or something and that's about it. But, uh, but it's uh, because it was kind of separate on the Eastern edge of the Roman empire, it, it actually absorbed probably about 30, 65% of its lexicon is Slavic and 35 is has Latin roots. And the, uh, so sometimes there's words that uh, there's two words for one thing and one has a Latin root and one has a Slavic root. 
uh, Dachian root. And, but the structure of the language is like, is structured like Latin. So I, I was reading the Stenescu because Juana was translating Stenescu properly. And I, I translated a poem just looking at the, doing the thing of just looking at the Romanian and seeing what it made me think of. And that was the translation. But I was seeing it through, I realized I was seeing it through Galician. And so it was actually Elisa Sampedrin doing these translations. And so the, in Ores Splendor, Elisa Sampedrin comes up with ideas about, like, she's like, it's better when you're translating, like, this is Elisa Sampedrin, it's better when you're translating to translate from a language you don't know, because then you can't make any mistakes. So there's, she went through, but I, it was Juana feeding me Stanescu poems, then curious to see what I would do one at a time. And it, she was feeding these poems to me one, one a day at a time when I was um, not able to write poetry myself. I was in Calgary. My mom was dying. I was uh, just at the hospital every day. And for almost two years, you know, she wasn't always in the hospital, but, but it was one of the, but at a certain point, before I would go to bed, I'd go check my email and Juan would have sent me a Stanescu poem and I would, I would translate it and then send back the result. And she was saying like, it still sounds like Stanescu. There's something that you capture in the sound of Stanescu that still sounds like Stanescu, even though it's not, it, it's not the words that he was using in his poem at all. And so we thought a lot about that, <clears throat> about how, that you could absorb something of the sound values that contribute to meaning um, without necessarily knowing exactly what was being said. And, uh, and so from that, we started, there was some of the things like I started translating some little bit of Stanescu and then she decided that if I could translate from Romanian, which I don't know that she could translate from Galician, which she doesn't know. So we ended up translating back and forth. And then into that poem and into that, remember that poem comes from a whole book too. It's not, uh, it's, this is the prank, really the whole thing. The book, Expeditions of the Chimera, um, we, we were also playing with the whole notion, the Deridian notion of the signature and of, uh, I mean, Derrida says like what actually asks in some of his work on the signature, what actually does the signature guarantee? And I'd already worked on when I was translating or uh, writing these comment, my own versions, having just read the Galician Cantigas, I wrote my own poems that are not translations, but using some of the tropes and styles in the poems. And then I signed them. All my poems, the last two lines of the poems is the archive number of the poem and the name of uh, Troubadour, because I like the names of the Troubadours a lot. So I want to put them in my poem too. So a lot of people think that is a translation. Those are translations, that book, because they're all signed with the name of a troubadour. But in fact, the name of the troubadour is the last line of the poem. So what makes something a signature? Why is a name a signature? And what does that reveal? And like, what does it guarantee? And that's especially interesting to somebody named Juana Avasilikoy, who's no, everybody's like, and our friend Juana, blah, 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 because few people start to learn how to, you know, do a, say a version of her name. And then my name, which, honest, you know, it's got like nine letters, four, then five. Like I often don't recognize how it's pronounced or how it's spelt or, 
And so like, who is, what does this name? And then plus in Galician, my name is Henning Moldy. And then in English, it's Aaron Moray. And in French, it's Aaron Moray. And it's like, so what does this name guarantee exactly? And it keeps changing. Does it, all these names guarantee the same person? Like what, what is, what, what are we uh, signing up for when we, when we see something as the signature? And so we realized in writing this book too, that we could sign each other's names. I could put one of a away on my poem because I'm a writer, I can do it. And so we would, we gave ourselves permission, you know, like to, to do that and to, to play with those notions. And then we derived immense uh, laughter too from wondering what people would think and who, what people would think, who wrote what, you know. <laughs> Plus we what? gave ourselves permission to alter what the other person wrote. Like if I sent her something, she could alter it and then write her own. So she could, uh, we gave each other absolute freedom to do for the other person to do whatever they wanted to the text. I love that approach, you know, when, when, when you are collaborating and doing that with people, because it's just such a playful, uh, it just, I think is a reminder of how at the heart of all this language play, there's some play, you know, mm-hmm. there, there's fun yeah. and excitement and joy in it. And, you know, even if it is going to move into a darker or sadder space at times it there's this um that movement has a real energy to it Mm -hmm. oh for sure and it's i mean it's it's lovely there's there's these these things that are that are i don't know i mean it's lovely just those play playing with things and playing with sounds i just there's this series of uh on the things on the street like I live near Saint-Denis in Montreal and there's these lit up things that have like a map of where you are so you can figure out what's around you and and they also sell ads and do things so there's these ads these days for this radio station it's probably hard to see on my phone there I mean this is as tall as me this sign and it's um there's there's a few of them there's one that goes just do 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 and I have an aphasic friend who can't speak and she communicates by saying do 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 so i'm like wow <laughs> it's like look yeah, interesting. she's published on the road my one of the, just to just jump to this prank for one second there's a poem in here or there's two facing poems on pages you know 42 and 43 of that uh, of the anthology um oh. i can't really read the titles but but the point of them though is uh, it's coatful and then the poem that coatful comes from uh, and the process here, of course, as you kind of hinted at before, is this is a example where uh, the translation, quote unquote, is actually, you know, looking at the not trying to replicate the language meaning at all, uh, so much as what is the what do the words look like? What do the words remind you of in terms of their visual look and feel? You know, this where it looks like dangles. So I'll use the word dangles in English. So that's a very, you know, extreme uh, translation approach that, you know, is probably the furthest from maybe a quote unquote, more normal, like translation process. But that's a a lot of poets have done that type of translation. BP Nickel did a lot of it. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh yeah, for sure. That it's almost like an eye rhyme uh, sort of in concept uh, but like an eye translation, you know, I, I'm curious to know what you feel those really playful, really kind of um, language focused uh, 
quote unquote translation methods that don't really have a lot of interest necessarily in what the thing uh, means, uh, or, but more of an interest in the surface and the focal, the, the language focus of it. I'm curious to know what you think about those sorts of um, more kind of extreme or language or, or material focused uh, translation approaches. Well, I, I would call, I wouldn't call, you can get so far that you're not in translation anymore. You're mm-hmm. using translational methods uh, for your own practice. And a lot of what people have called translational poetics is basically about appropriation of um, other people's work because they do this using other people's work without their permission so that I can write my own poems. And that's really like, that is driven by the narcissist value of poetry. It's, it can go a certain distance, but if it's not accompanied by actually trying to listen to and welcome the work of others and trying to alter yourself in order to recognize the work of others, instead of altering the work of others to support yourself. Um, if there, if there's not that other direction in the traffic, then, uh, you know, if it's not a two way street, then pretty soon all the cars are out in a field somewhere. There's nobody downtown, you know, so it's, uh, there's, there's that. I mean, the tra- in this book prank or what is it it's called, <laughs> um, expeditions of a Cumera, the, we use, translational tools, but we're writing our own work. We're not really, we're not really translate the trans, you know, but even here where you, you know, you're, you know, writing your own work, uh, it's all based on this Stanescu poem that doesn't exist. You still are capturing the tone of that Stanescu approach. Uh, it seems so there still is like a, a, uh, somewhat like a deference to the tone, uh, and, yeah. uh, and there's, of course, a permission in the sense of like you two are collaborating here uh, and playing around. So I, I think yeah. it's, it's interesting to hear you talk about it that way. I never thought about it, but it, it makes a lot of sense um, to kind of consider the motivations and the process as part of the poem and that kind of moral positioning. It's interesting. I'm curious to know if anyone else has like things they want to jump in here before we kind of, um, you know, move yeah, towards we have, letting her go. We have about go. 10 minutes left, so... Does anybody have? Hey, does, you don't have to. You can ask a question about some other. Yeah, questions. anything at all, really. Yeah. That's what kind of chips she likes. <laughs> What's your favorite type of chips? That's what I want to know. Uh-huh. <laughs> Aaron, can I, can I ask a question? Mm-hmm. Um, sure. At what point in your life did you like branch out from being a girl to being like a strong woman in? Sorry, I know it's a convoluted question. I know, like, like, when did you decide that you were a writer that could speak so passionately about everything? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> did you ever feel suppressed? Like, did you ever feel suppressed in your voice? No, because I'll get out of it. I'll leave. Is it? There was this expression, I don't even know if Baudelaire said this, but somebody once said, and I always have this in my head, Baudelaire said they left two rights out, two rights out of the, the, the rights of, uh, what's that French thing, the rights of man, and they were the first ones to have a kind of rights declaration, the French and their French Revolution, anyways, and Baudelaire says they left two rights out of it, the right to make a fool of yourself, and the right to leave, mm-hmm. and so... I thought, gee, you know, I'm going to take advantage of those two rights, the right to make a fool of yourself so and the right to leave. So I, I just, uh, I just do, do, 
don't worry about being foolish. I guess uh, I think strength is misinterpreted as being a strength when really it's just a, a willingness to to let yourself be be foolish in a way. You know. I mean, yeah. I, in a way, I'm still 12 years old. I, I really haven't got it yet. You know. But you seem to to me like you seem like like how did you break through to that other side? Uh, I don't know. I well, one thing is I realized that that I'm no better than other people, and other people know better than me. That other people feel uncertain, and other people can stutter, and other people cannot make sense, and other people can be embarrassed, you know. And and also, like people, I tell people, like I'm actually a shy person. They're like kidding me. And a, friend, a friend of mine said, "Yeah, Attila the Hun was shy too." <laughs> But uh, it's but I it's I have a hard time to speak up a lot of times. But then too, like I'm an allergic person, and so I've always the world has always been alien to me because it's not a safe place for me. Yeah. And um, so I have to say things now because they're you know maybe things will just totally screw up tomorrow and I won't be around. You know. Like, I feel like like I. I hear what you're saying. And I just like, I want to say the same things. I just want that like extra little thing to jump out. Like you are jumping out right now. Thank you for all that you do. Oh, well, thanks. I don't, I don't know that I do so much. I do so much because I'm in good company. I always figure I can only do things because I'm in company of others. To me, to me, it's all, I, I work a bit, a corner. Of, it's like I'm, we're all embroidering a big, on a big blanket or something or quilting a big quilt. And I feel I can do my bit because I feel other people there. I feel the fabric tug as other people are doing their work. And I know I'm just doing my corner. It's all I can do. And, uh, but that we need the corner. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much. You're, that's a great question, Laurie, and a great sentiment. I think Aaron to end off on, uh, it's been really pleasant to have you, uh, here in this you know little community and, uh, thanks so much. Uh, and, and again, just a reminder of people that Aaron is the writer in residence here. Uh, so for the term, and so you can, I, I posted in the next site, how you can get a hold of Aaron and make appointments to talk to her about your work. And, uh, if you, you know, write yourself or whatever. Like. Yeah, and I always say there's some like a general whoops general uh, framework for getting an appointment, just mm -hmm. so people know. But you also you don't need to. You can bring translations. You can bring other things too. Um, I'm a writer. I've been writing for over 40 years. I worked as a commercial translator, as a copywriter, as doing all kinds of things. So I mean, I've, I've helped people. Uh, with, with many aspects of writing and you don't have to actually, even if you don't feel like it or you feel shy, you don't have to bring your, you can bring me and just show me something that day. You don't have to bring something in advance and you don't need, if you have more general questions, you don't have to bring writing is what I'm trying to say. If you just have some, some kind of questions you want to ask me, you can, and you can come back. Then if you decide hmm, this might be good, then you can come back if you like too. you can make more than one appointment. And Aaron's one of the um, subset of writers that I often say is uh, the, you know, truly professional writer, you know, who actually is really writing and really out there doing it all the time and, you know, not uh, total university subsidized all day, all night, uh, you know, has really made her own way in the, this uh, writing world. Um, although 
so I really, you know, uh, encourage people to talk to Aaron, uh, whatever your ambitions or as a writer might be. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy. I'm always happy to talk to people. That's why I do these residencies. It isn't. Uh, mm-hmm. It isn't actually because uh, it's, you know, I'm desperate to make money or something. It's actually because it gives me a chance to, to connect with and share some some things I've learned with people, and maybe they don't have to go through the same learning curve I went through, you know. No, I appreciate. It. I just remember even from uh, when I was in school, uh, I, I you were actually one of the way back in the day at the university of Manitoba, somebody brought you in, you know, I was when you had done pillage laud. So you just done that book way back then. And that was the first, you know, time I'd encountered you and your work. I'd even just, you know, encountered that kind of work. And I remember uh, just, you know, it it made a big impression on me, uh, your approach then. Uh, And then, you know, of course, when I was in Calgary, you know, around this time you were there, you know, kind of running into you over here and there over the years. Yeah, no, I remember you from Pleasant. Yeah, it's always been encouraging and pleasant. And as a student, like I know, um, I was always impressed with how uh, receptive you have been to students and uh, and really open with them. So I do really encourage, you know, people to get uh, in touch with Aaron if at all, if they have at all, uh, or or tell your friends, uh, you know, if you're not, you know, as interested in writing yourself, you know, let your friends who are know uh, that it isn't just university students that can get a hold of Aaron. Yeah, it's supposed to be for the Winnipeg community, but even if it's mm-hmm. somebody, uh, I mean, Winnipeg, not the whole world, but if somebody, if I'm not that <laughs> busy and somebody else mm-hmm. from somewhere else wants help, I mean, I, I actually do answer questions when people DM me on on Twitter or various places. I don't do people's homework or <laughs> I don't answer the question like what does this poem mean Aaron I'm like no yeah. I'm not I can't hire me to interpret my work but um, that you can do it just fine and I just encourage them about ways of looking at things but I always and especially with uh, COVID when the students were really shut up for a year I I found I was getting more um, more questions from people or and and uh, just so I just really like I, it's one thing I can do it eh? I can, I can, I can try and answer the best I can. Well, thanks very much, and thanks uh, for joining us. Okay, thank, thanks everybody. I uh, hope we'll meet some of you uh, later on. Take care.